Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the second week of June. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined again today by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Josh, how are we this week? Doing better than last week, I guess. Yeah, last week was tough. Uh, yeah. So that's good. I think I think hopefully most everybody is. Well, for today, attention in the nation and the state continues to be focused on the protests that were triggered by the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Now, two weeks ago, more than two weeks ago, uh, his funeral was held this week in Houston, his hometown. Um Attention, for better or worse, is is turning to the political response as uh, the protests have continued but become more consistently peaceful. I think the system has, uh, you know, as it should to some degree, turned to the to, to the political and the policy response and to try to come up with some kind of answer. Maybe answer is the wrong word to. What's oh. been happening in the last two weeks? It's complicated to say the least because we're talking about multiple discussions, a lot going on, uh, and so you know when you're trying to come up as a as an elected official with what we're calling answers, but you don't really know exactly yeah. what the question to focus on is. I don't know if answers are maybe maybe response. Maybe it's not necessarily. Yeah, an I think I'd said response, and I didn't want to use it again, but uh, but. You know, some kind of response is really what we're talking about. I mean, so I, we thought today what we do is talk about two of the major themes that are going on here. And again, this is there's a lot at play here, both in the national conversation, and it actually even looks different in different places depending on what the responses the the protests look like and and what's been going on at the local and state level. But today we want to talk about what's playing out both nationally in Texas and talk about uh, race and talk about policing. I mean, this initially arose, of course, because of the killing of George Floyd by Minnesota police. Um, But the police response to those protests in many parts of the country, um, perhaps most prominently in the last week in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., has further fueled this discussion. the discussion has been rooted in race and in the history of police practices in communities of color, especially black communities. And you know, these are problems with deep historical roots. They go back really to the end of the Civil War uh, and the efforts of local governments in most parts of the country to segregate and control formerly enslaved people through the era of Jim Crow laws in the South through the civil rights movement that peaked in the mid-1960s, through the mass incarcerations, then uh, the war on drugs that hit black communities hard starting in the 1980s, and really running into the present. Uh, and we could look at lots of details within each of those. That's a very broad constitution of the arc here. You know, so I, I thought we'd start with uh, with policing. 
That seems like the, the first most immediate topic. Now, at the intersection of race and the criminal justice system, the discussion right now looks like you know, it, it's turning into the most fundamental confrontation with how policing is practiced that we've seen in a very long time in this country, certainly since the, the last wave of professionalizing crime fighting in the mid 20th century. Now, we've seen a recurring discussions of police brutality, but, you know, it seems to me we're having now a much more detailed, broad public policy discussion about how policing should happen and, and to some extent what the police should even be. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, one of the I think one of the interesting things is to the extent that we've had discussions about police policy, you know, really, I mean, in the recent history. So, you know, thinking about the last 40 or 50 years, it's really been mostly focused on how to make sure that police are supported enough. And that includes both, you know, payment, pensions, benefits, but also weapons right, and resources. And so most of the discussions around, you know, especially the political discussions around police have been about how to provide them with more resources to combat, you know, increasingly terrifying, you know, threats and, and different types of crime, whether it be drugs or otherwise, but usually drugs. I mean, you've already highlighted that, and the war on drugs is a big impetus for this. I mean, this is a very, very different discussion. And, it, and, it, and what's interesting about it is, and I think, you know, it's partially the fact that, you know, you do have all these politicians searching for a response to this, and they're searching for different responses depending on kind of their orientations toward these questions. But it's ranging from, you know, th things that are, you know, I would say is I'm going to put this in quote, you know, is in quotes is as simple as banning chokeholds, for example, just some some literal, you know, how police conduct their job, but all the way back to you know really thinking. I mean, you kind of mentioned this about. How are police oriented in society? I mean, I think other you know people have pointed this out many times, but for for many citizens of society, the police are your primary interaction point with the government. I mean, this is this is this is basically you know you know you're not really usually talking to a city council member. You know, if anything, you talk to police officers. This is kind of and the question becomes you know what is the role of police in society and what what, the, what people are saying when they're talking about that is they're talking about you know should be should police be our frontline mental health uh, responders. Should they be the per, the people who are dealing with homelessness? Should they be the people who are the primary, you know, off, you know, let's say, state resource in dealing with domestic abuse and in some case child abuse and drug addiction and all these sorts of societal ills? And I think right now, what you know, what's interesting is again the range of this discussion can can go all the way from well, you know, we need to make sure that there's better hiring practices for police officers or police officers shouldn't be allowed to use chokeholds, all the way to you know, what are we even asking police to do right now? And that's a that's a big discussion, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I think the last kind of uptick that we saw in this was, you know, very much, you know, late, you know, really in the in the mid to late 90s, when we saw the emergence of, you know, what was called community policing disseminate throughout you know, throughout the to, to police departments throughout the country, and you know, whenever you get these big ideas kind of emerging like that, and and the you know the the community policing model was about trying to engage more ties with the community. Uh, police departments, in some ways, embraced it because it was accompanied by uh, a push for more hiring, and in a lot of places, making police forces bigger. 
And yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, wasn't to, that discussion on the heels of basically a huge increase in the number of cops? I mean, wasn't that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, and I and I think it's you know important, particularly given the partisan environment, that that was pushed at the national level by a Democratic president. It was Bill Clinton who made it a centerpiece of his campaign, and then you know his policy position in this area to continually go before Congress and push the phrase, you know, we're going to put 100,000 new cops in the street. Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the recent, you know, collections of clips that are being put together by, you know, virtually everybody that's now reviewing this history, it was something that was in the State of the Union speech four or five times. And in the end, he wound up getting more than that as part of this model of you know, that was kind of a, in a way, a, a kinder, gentler, it were marketed as a kinder, gentler police, even as it was also accompanied by the war on drugs and, and a, you know, crime legislation that was extremely punitive of people, with, you know, for drug possession. You know, many things that were now at the national level and, and in the states kind of reviewing and trying to unwind to some degree, particularly the heavy sentences for drug possession, which were themselves criticized for being uh, racially discriminatory. Well, and I think, you know, that that in and of itself really is a great encapsulate. I mean, it's been 30 years, so it's not like this is an immediate shift, right? But it's it a great like encapsulate. yesterday to me. Yeah. Well, that's fair. It was five years ago. No. <laughs> but I mean, it's one of those things where, I mean, that actually encapsulates how far this discussion has, has come, even in, in such a short period of time. Because if you think about that, what we're saying here is, you know, right now, it may seem as though, you know, Democrats, progressives, and sort of, you know, their allies are pushing for some of the, the bigger, large-scale reforms. You know, I think Republicans have been much more open to some of these more narrowly focused reforms in policing. But the point here is, you know, you go back to the 90s, you know, which we're talking about here when when Bill Clinton was sort of spearheaded a big increase in the number of police officers, the size of police departments, you know, and again, a continued trajectory of the war on drugs. You know, what that shows you is that, you know, the idea of being tough on crime and supporting police officers, you know, was a was a, an unquestioned tenet of politics at that period. And it really has been, honestly, I would say up until the last, you know, five to seven years. And when I say that, I don't mean accepted by everybody, as the data clearly shows, but accepted by majorities in both parties that, you know, you can't be a politician who appears to be, you know, they would say, you, know, you can't appear to be, quote unquote, soft on crime. Right. And so ultimately, the fact that we're even beginning to have these discussions and the fact that there are mainstream politicians and parties who are pushing for, you know, potentially saying, hey, maybe these police forces are getting too big. That's a that's a big shift in the policy space. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I think, you, you know, you, it's one of the reasons I raised Clinton. You're right to notice that that became a kind of it became a way for for Democrats, frankly, to look less liberal. Yeah. Which I mean, was, this, is, this was an area where centrist Democrats, particularly centrist white Democrats, but also other, you know, Democrats of other races, frankly, were able to say, you know, we are not just, you know, quote unquote, soft liberals. You know, we think that we need to have a police in the community, but it's how we're going to do this that has to change. But we're not, as you say, we're not soft on crime. And that's been, you know, under some reevaluation in the last several years. But this is certainly uh, the events of the last two weeks have certainly accelerated that. And there are a bunch of, you know, kind of significant policy questions then that have been opened up that 
you know, are typically, you know, have been bubbling under and are always going on in a lot of ways at local, you know, at the local level, which is where, uh, you know, all of this police enforcement and all the administration and institutionalization of policing happens. And that's an important piece of this, that it's a national conversation that has thousands of local versions and in which a lot of the power and decision making and influencing is going to unfold at the local level. I think people, you know, who are following this for the first time might be surprised, you know, even in a federal system, how disaggregated the management of police forces are across this country. I mean, I think, you know, the idea, I mean, you can see this on both sides, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, either the, you know, the president himself can, you know, order up local police forces to do something or, you know, not really true. The idea that, you know, Congress could pass legislation that would immediately impact every you know police force in the country not really i mean they can try to compel them to but not so much and i think you know i think you know here locally in austin i think something people would be surprised to find out is the fact that you know the city council has no control over who the police chief is there's a lot of discussion right now about the police chief in austin whether or not he should resign or not based on you know how the departments responded to the protests but also previous controversies the reality is the Austin City Council, the mayor, the elected officials of Austin actually have no control over who the police chief is here. It's up to the city manager. And in fact, it would actually be a violation of, of, of some of the charter if they were to even press too hard on an employment decision like that. And something like that may be surprising to people, but this is actually kind of more the state of play than not, which is why in some ways, you know, I would say, I'm just thinking about this now, but the public opinion pressure is so important in this because this isn't necessarily about you know politicians looking to, you know, capitalize on discontent to, to reform police departments. This is about, you know, mass protests that have been going on for weeks now and and how not only are elected officials going to respond to that, but also, you know, largely autonomous police forces, you know, who yeah, rely I, on public support to some degree to maintain their legitimacy. I mean, just to be f- fair about it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think this, this, you know, if, uh, we don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but if you look back at kind of the history of policing and and thinking about policing and what these models should be, you know, there's this recurring discussion of how police departments can retain legitimacy from within people that are kind of trying to be thought leaders mm-hmm. uh, in, in that intellectual and professional community. Um, but, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these issues are just very, put it this way, until atmospheres get heated like it is now or incidents really draw people's attention to it, you know, these are very kind of mundane government, you know, and administrative issues. What kind of oversight should be exercised over police departments, which, and as you it, say, have a lot of autonomy. Right? right. And is it is it internal? Is it external? Is it elected right. officials? Is it a citizen's council? I mean, these are all and it right. depends. Yeah. How are police trained? Um, you know, where do the norms and guidelines for training come from? How should police be equipped um, you know, which really goes to this discussion as has informed this recent discussion of the militarization of police has been a lot of attention to, you know, the the public profile police in the protests, the equipment they have, the equipment they use. And as always in politics, the quantity of the resources that go to police and for what purposes and how they are allocated and how much control you can have over them. And so we're going to see this convert these conversations and these issues that you know, if you follow local and city politics at all, I mean, and these are always kind of bubbling under. Every budget year, there's a discussion of, you know, 
the chunk of the budget that goes to the police. There are these personnel issues, like you're talking as you're talking about. There's the role of police unions, and these are all things that Congress doesn't really have much to do with. And so, all of that you have to take, I think, is the backdrop in this for where the conversation is now and thinking about two developments in the last couple of weeks. One is the emergence of the slogan, defund the police, which has become kind of the, the umbrella concept of, you know, be much very mundane about it. That is now coming out of these protest movements. It's coming out of, you know, to some degree, Black Lives Matter, but also just the general kind of wave of protest that's going on. So that's one thing is just to fund the police. And I want to come back on this second. But then the other thing is that there has been national political action in the Congress this week. Uh, the Democrats in the House unveiled a police reform bill. And the, the word is that the Republicans in the Senate are working on it. But let's talk a little bit about defund the police first. I mean, you know, it's it's a vague term. And I think it's lent itself almost immediately to become a uh, kind of a, a, a political Rorschach test for how you look at this in terms of how literally you take that term. I, I well, you know, frankly think it's an unfortunate artifact the problem, of the, them the, choosing that language. But yeah, I was going to say, the problem is it's not a vague term. It's a vague description of a general bucket of policies that is still being defined. As a term, it's actually almost it, too it, clear. It, maybe and it's it not vague enough. Yeah. Well, right. Because ultimately, I mean, people, if you say, do you think we should defund the police department, whether you know what that refers to or not, first of all, it doesn't mean anything specific right now in terms of the people who are pushing for defunding the police per se. And it depends, again, on every, again, just as this conversation is, should make clear, it really depends on the locality in terms of what that might actually mean. But for people who don't know what it means, it means taking basically, what if we didn't have a police force? Now, that's not what anybody's proposing. Uh, but the idea here is, and we already kind of discussed this a little bit, is I mean, what it generally means is a reallocation of responsibilities and resources towards issues like mental health, homelessness, drug addiction, domestic violence, basically from police agencies to social welfare agencies to either address these causes as you know these issues as they happen, or to direct some more of those uh, resources to the root causes of those problems. And so that's, you know, what people are talking about is basically a shift from, you know, basically funding, you know, what people would broadly call public safety budgets to basically social welfare budgets to deal with things that, you know, again, if you talk to police, I've, you know, I've, in various things I've done, I've talked to the, you know, the head of the police union here in Austin, they, you know, in their positions, they don't want to be dealing with mental health issues. They don't want to be first responders for mental health. And this goes back to the fact that, you know, as we were kind of discussing, training all across the country is very different for police officers. There's no standard training. How much they're trained to actually deal with mental health, homelessness, domestic violence, it's, it's going to be limited no matter what. And it's not necessarily something that the police departments even want to be doing. But this is a complicated discussion, whereas saying defund the police is not. And it doesn't, and it really actually, you know, hides a lot of the complexity in this issue, you know, one thing I just want to jump back to before we, we keep going on that, though, is, you know, you mentioned something I think is interesting here, which is, you know, one of the things that I think makes, you know, Texas a particularly interesting case around this, these ideas in terms of defunding the police is the fact that because Texas is a traditionally conservative state, um, you know, what you tend to have is small, you know, basically small government. And what that means is, you know, low taxes, low services is the model we talk about here. But, but one of the essential services that all Texas government provides, whether at the state level or the local levels, is public safety services. 
And so one of the things that's, I think, you know, interesting about this is that, you know, I read yesterday that when they talk about defunding the New York City police budget, for instance, you know, they're talking about 6% of the city's budget. In a place like Austin, public safety, including fire, EMS, and police, and the majority of this is police, is about a little more than 50 to 60% of the actual city budget. And so that's a reflection of, again, different political priorities. New York City, very liberal in a more liberal state, is going to have a lot more social programs that they're already putting money towards. In a place like Austin, in a, in a, in a state like Texas, which, again, expects a lot less from government generally, turns out that public safety is a much bigger share of our budget. The political intersection of this is interesting in that you've got these democratic cities in a Republican state who, you know, having limited resources themselves, might actually be open to shifting their budgets from yeah. you know public safety to social welfare programs. And that's sort of something that's kind of underlined the surface here, which actually, you know, in Texas is it might make it even more important in some ways or, or more uh, pressing of an issue. I'm not sure. We'll see. Well, and public opinion in Texas is a is an interesting template for this, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we pulled on that last year, you know, most recently, we've done it a couple times where we have people assess you know, how favorably they view different institutions. And the police actually don't do very bad overall, but there's a lot of internal differences among, depending on your racial group. Right. So, I mean, overall in Texas, we found that 58% of Texas voters in 2019 said they had a favorable view of the police, but that among, but, you know, that hides a lot of differences. So 58% of people overall had a favorable view of the police, but that was 78% of Republicans and 39% of Democrats. More pressing to the point here, 67% of white Texas voters had a favorable view of the police compared to only 32% of African-American Texas voters. And the police was actually relatively highly rated in terms of institutions. The military was slightly high, you know, was rated slightly higher. You know, Texas state government, local government was less, was rated more, uh, was rated lower than that. The criminal justice system overall was rated positively by only 35% of Texans. And that actually shows you something. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting given that these are related, right? The way, you know, police on the one right. hand and the criminal justice system on the other. What you see with the criminal justice system is you see the ratings of a, you know, again, an institutional part of society. But it's one that we've been having a discussion about now for at least 10 or 15 years with respect to reforms to the criminal justice system to make it more fair. And people are aware of that. And so it's not as though the criminal justice system is super highly rated, given the fact that we've had a lot of discussions about the inequities in the system, and those have been ongoing for a long time. But the police thing is, you know, police are generally well rated by most Texans, if not necessarily by African Americans. Yeah. And I think when we look at those numbers, it, it tells us something about where this debate may go, I, I suspect. And we're already beginning to see this, that, you know, there is, you know, partisanship and the way that, uh, and the demographics of the two political parties in the country are going to shape this discussion. We're seeing it already, I think. Um, you know, people listening to this are probably seeing it among themselves, among their, in their families, in which people are viewing how this is unfolding now very differently, and it has a lot to do with your predispositions in this area. Um, That's right. But also, I mean, I think what's interesting, and I think, you know, I mean, we were sort of having a conversation before this about, you know, is this is this a watershed moment? Is this is this the time we look back on and say, hey, this is this is when things changed? And, you know, I think in general, but especially for young people, it's it's disappointing how rarely that's the case. 
you know, most yeah. often something seems like it's going to be a big change and then, you know, either inattention or, you know, the sort of the slow gears of government grind to a halt and then nothing happens. I think the thing, you know, and I, and I think that's an open question to see where we go from here. But I think what is interesting is, and, and you know, as you start to look at some of the national public opinion polls, uh, you know, I think one of the differences that we're seeing now is that there's more agreement on the underlying problem, not total agreement. Let's be clear here. There's not total agreement on the underlying problem. But, you know, even if you look at public opinion from even just a few years ago uh, to today, you know, the share of Americans, white, black, Hispanic, otherwise, who say that, you know, basically police officers discriminate against, you know, black people or treat black people differently than white people has gone up significantly. Now, often that can just be the result of of the shock, right? So right now you're seeing it on the news every day. People are aware of it. Um, but the thing is, is that we've had incidents like this before. We've had police, uh, you know, kill African-Americans in their custody before on video before. We've had protests in response to that before. The difference now is that, uh, you know, having seen, it seems like multiple of these incidents over a number of, you know, the last five or 10 years with, you know, the prevalence of cell phone videos, but then also I think how sustained these protests have been. I mean, there's a question when they started, is this going to go on for one day? Is this going to be this weekend? Is it going to peter out? But it just keeps going, requiring some kind of response. And it seems like Americans as a whole are coming around to the fact that, you know, African-Americans are not being treated fairly by police officers. And that's something that's different because ultimately people did not agree with that when, as on the whole, especially white Americans, ex for example, when Eric Garner was killed in much the same way as George Floyd. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question whether um, this is going to sustain or not. And, and we... You know, we've seen this a lot in the last few years as politics have become both, you know, polarized and volatile and the, and the parties have so sorted. And this feel this does feel like a different moment in terms of, you know, that the push for change seems to be not just put it this way. A lot of a lot of these conversations in the last few years, and I would have to say guns is the comparison I would make in gun policy. Mm. There seems to be a very, you know, there's a sustained attention at the national level, you know, things happen sporadically in different parts of the country, but there's just not the kind of follow through. I mean, there's not been major gun legislation. You know, we've just not seen a lot of things happen that people thought might happen over the last decade after a series of mass shootings. It feels like this is seeping down into politics throughout the country. I think in large part because of, as you say, because of race, and everywhere you look, there, this is this is conversation is happening, and it's happening not just in the national media, but at the local level and at the state level, and it's it's it seems like the, you know, the propagation of the discussion has happened in a way that we haven't seen with another political issue in a while. I mean, and it's taking a bunch of different forms and that's why it is about both, you know, and it's both the intersection of, of, of race and policing is really, I mean, you know, the, as we recorded this podcast this morning, I was watching a, a commissioner's court meeting in Caldwell County here outside of, outside of Austin over Confederate monuments. And it was a, an extensive heartfelt discussion that it's hard for me to watch that in, 
you know, basically rural Caldwell County and think that this was just something that's going to come up in the commissioner's court. And remember, commissioner's court is sort of like the the analogous thing. It's not a court. It's not a court of law. It's a governing body for the county. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is not going to go away. This is not just somebody showing up for a council meeting, speaking their piece about a pet cause, and then it's going to go away. You know, there's heat, there's excitement, and they, had, and they got the attention of the court. You know, and we're seeing that all over the place. I mean, there's already, you know, there's already uh, proposals in Austin, you know, about this. As we've mentioned before, at the national level, even though they don't have much impact at the local level, uh, congressional Democrats and probably as in response, Senate Republicans, and I think Mitt Romney will probably be involved in this bill, are going to call for shifts in federal policy that will can only affect directly federal law enforcement practices, but are calling for some of the similar things. And in a way, it's, it's a way of signaling, of modeling behavior, I think, and sending signals to the local level. So I, it does feel like there is something more sustained going on. How fast that can happen, you know, how much finally comes out of it, I think, as we've been saying, remains to be seen. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the thing that really strikes me about all this that is so you know, I mean, despite the heartbreaking nature of everything that we're talking about here and, and the complexity of all, I mean, in the in the present moment, I think the thing that's just so amazing about this is just the role that uh, that media has played in all this. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, the mainstream media. I just mean the idea of, of media, people taking videos, people yeah. showing what it's like to protest, because that, that makes a difference. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, this conversation was very different five years ago. I mean, there were videos of police off police officers you know, killing unarmed black men that we've, we've seen, we've seen these videos before and they're heartbreaking and they're tragic, but the response, you know, even again, four years ago was, Hey, that's one bad apple. The rest of, you know, police are good and we can't judge all police by this one bad apple. The problem then becomes, well, you know, first of all, how many bad apples are you willing to accept? But, you know, I think what you've seen in the last few weeks is you've seen, you know, numerous videos emerge in a, in a similar span of time showing either police officers or just armed white civilians in some case, uh, killing African American men. But then, additionally, when people have protested this, you know, basically police violence, and it's being met by, in some cases, not all cases, but in a lot of cases, by unrestrained police violence that is then videotaped by people, it becomes really, really difficult for anyone, no matter what their predispositions, no matter how they're oriented towards police, to say this is okay. And that's kind of where we are now. But the, but again, follow through is a lot harder. And, you know, again, a political system, both in Texas and elsewhere, that's not necessarily made to move quickly and certainly isn't made to, you know, move in extreme directions quickly. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think as we wind down, I mean, for me, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting combination of, you know, two elements that we think of in politics all the time you know, that are, you know, kind of a intention and also just very different when it comes to people that don't normally pay attention to politics, all of a sudden paying attention to politics. You know, on one hand, I, I just think there's no way right now that you can ignore the importance of sustained protest in this. And, you know, I think, you know, you, you raise a really important point that Part of the thing about that protest is not only it's a duration. I mean, we've had two weeks and counting of protests, you know, 
with more violent and a much more kind of chaotic feel in the earlier period, now settling more into a more peaceful, organized, sustained um, kind of, you know, with the big marches that are still continuing in the system. But with the overlay of all of the me- all of the the micro level media and personally produced media that are really kind of adding a, a layer to this that I think is both giving us a giving the public a different view of it, but also mm-hmm. sustaining it in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think. And on the other hand, you've got you know the very mundane institutional dynamic going on in which you know this is going to be a you know, sustained series of teachable moments, not just in social protests, but in decentralized institutional response. And what I mean by that is, you know, we are going to see federalism in the United States and the way that federalism shapes policy and politics uh, in the United States really play out here for the next, you know, months, if not years on this issues as the different levels of the political system, the national you know, the national government, state governments, and then all of these thousands of local governments try to respond to this without any institutional real, anybody institutionally in the driver's seat. There are people that can be thought leaders. There are people that can model behavior. There are people that can try to drive the discussion, but no one's going to be in charge of this and no one's going to have the final say because of, of the federal arrangements in the country. So... I think with that, we're going to try to keep this in the window. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Thanks to our sound crew. And everybody have a safe and healthy week. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Second Reading. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.